the current international order is finished. This week saw history being made as South Africa took Israel to the world court for its genocide against Palestinians. What does this historic occasion mean and why is it so significant? I spoke to the lawyer Usad Fahad Ansari to answer your questions in this special episode of Empowered by Islam 21C. Our first question is, do you know how many times they mentioned Hamas in Israel's uh, defense speech? There was somebody who had a ticker on actually. Yeah. Um, and I think within the first, I think the first 20 minutes had been said about 67 times or something, yeah. but I, I don't know the exact figure. Do you know? Yeah. It's 137. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In in a hearing which ostensibly had nothing, nothing to do with Hamas. <laughs> but uh, it was it was impressive. One of the things I want, uh, I want to discuss with you is, you know, what your reaction was to the case. But before we get into that, can you just give us a bit of a background to what is the IACJ and just tell us a bit about it? Okay, yeah, that's a very, very good question because there has been a lot of discussion about this. So the International Court of Justice or the World Court, this was established in 1945 and it's there to settle disputes between states. So you can't be an individual and bring an action to the ICJ. The ICJ has no prosecutorial powers. They can't prosecute mm -hmm. individuals and bring criminal sanctions against them. Um, all it can do is to rule between states. And what it's, most of its work is involved in is settling boundary disputes and maritime disputes, stuff like that. Uh, occasionally there will be issues about genocide, like in the present case, um, or cases to do with economic sanctions and the like. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, on the other hand, this came about about 20 years ago with the Rome Statute. And what it has the power to do is to investigate and prosecute individuals for international crimes like war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity and uh, aggression. So they can, they can look into all of those things. They can bring criminal prosecutions and sentence people uh, to prison uh, for their involvement in, the, in these crimes. So there's a, a significant difference between the two. And can you tell us uh, about the ICJ in terms of is it is it useful? Has it has it you know given the world any fruit so far? Or is it one of those things that I suppose it depends on a person's politics as well? That you know the the master's tools won't dismantle the master's house kind of thing. You know it it was born uh, it came about in the era of and and by the powers that were you know. Um, uh, the, the the kind of global hegemonic powers in the last century. So some people might say it it's there to cement, you know, the the um the the supremacy of certain states and certain ways of thinking and so forth. Has anything useful come out of it? So I mean the, the answer to that is really yes and no. Um it has issued some useful judgments, but it's the main problem with it is that there's no real effective implementation measures. So if it was to rule, for example, that a country is involved in genocide and it needs to be sanctioned as a result, the only way to implement that is through the UN Security Council. Security Council. Mm. And as we know, there are five permanent members who've got a power of veto. And uh, when it comes to Israel, one of them has exercised that power of veto on almost 100 occasions in the past 75 years to try to prevent any criticism or effective action against Israel. Mm. So while it does issue judgments which can have a reputational effect, which can have uh, a court of public opinion uh, effect, so to speak, um, it adds to political pressure, it adds to lobbying pressure, 
but in terms of actual implementation, it, it's not going to do anything. I mean, for example, it ruled in 86 against the United States that it was arming the Contras against the Nicaraguan government. Um, and the United States was ignored it completely, just said it's, we're not bound by its jurisdiction. We don't believe it. We, did, we just didn't engage with it. Then later on in 2018, Iran brought an action against the United States over the economic sanctions that were imposed upon it. And they, that just settled last year. But even in 2018, they wanted provisional measures, which the ICJ granted. So that's like an injunction saying, while you're looking at this case, which may take years, in the meantime, we want some interim relief or an injunction or provisional measures, as it's called in the language of the court. And um, they granted it, but the U.S. again said, "Well, we don't care what they say. We're not going to. We're not going to do anything." And so, what what it has the effect of doing really is is creating a pariah, um, pariah state. Really, if you're going to be ignoring international law, ignoring the jurisdiction of the world court, mm. um, then it does sort of isolate you as a pariah. You really can't argue about law and order. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one one person, a good quote I saw was um, they said, the process is more important than the outcome. Um, the fact that it's, it's you know, even though when it comes to enforcing some kind of ruling, there probably is going to be a veto by the US or someone. Um, the fact that, you know, during the process, uh, all these, these, these facts come to light, they, 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 um, uh, they're, you know, on the on the news agenda of people around the world, apart from maybe the, the British and American media, <laughs> I've been kind of eerily silent, uh, but we'll talk about that. There's an, a very interesting parallel with South Africa, incidentally. Um, so in South Africa, many, many decades ago was an occupation of Namibia. And whatever happened, this was the apartheid South African regime the UN Security Council kept vetoing any effective action against South Africa. Why is the US and the UK who are propping up that regime as it's propping up Israel today? And even after the ICJ ruled in favor of South Africa, again, it was they couldn't implement the measures because of the UN and because of the US and the UK. However, that judgment itself was quite devastating and that sort of formed the groundwork to whereas previously you had the human rights NGOs and activists talking about it being an apartheid regime and it you know creating sort of aggressive measures against Namibia and its own people, suddenly you had and the world court ruling against it, and that kind of pressure sort of gave the impetus until suddenly it became the U.S. and the U.K. Their position was completely untenable uh, at some point, and they had to concede. So I'm hopeful that whatever happens with the ICJ even if they rule against South Africa in this case, that that document, that 86 pages mm. of pleadings will be utilized, will be uh, relied upon and form the groundwork to actually make Israel to be that pariah state that it deserves to be. Alongside the other countries that have been supporting it, the handful of, uh, you know, former apartheid uh, supporters, uh, UK and uh, the US, I've been supporting. I mean, I saw. I don't know if it's verified yet, but um, some something about South Africa taking the U.S. or Biden to court as well. Yeah, I heard that as well. I mean, more interestingly is the position that Germany took. 
that it's declared its intention to intervene on the side of Israel, saying that it's not committing a genocide. And there've been lots mm. of many, many quips and jokes going on about Germany. But I, I think just the best. Saw the, um, the the presidency of Namibia actually sent mm. out a very scathing tweet, uh, a media press release. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I guess, th th there you go, isn't it? It's 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 that parallel. So we just talked about South Africa and Namibia, and Namibia, again, Germany were the ones who committed genocide in in Namibia. So it, it is the old place. It really does look like the old colonial settler states, the old imperial powers, once again, basically mm. taking up against their former colonies. Um, and the world is very clearly divided in this. You can see the sides who were siding with. Uh, South Africa and those who are opposing South Africa, um, and sadly for me, uh, as as an Irish citizen, was to see Ireland on the side that said South Africa shouldn't be bringing this action. It's not genocide. But then you know we had some so, so, some uh, balance, and when we had that the Irish barrister at the end giving her uh, and that makes it all right. Well, she speaks <laughs> for the people, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mashallah. Um, so can you can you just give us a rundown of the arguments for people who didn't have maybe several hours to kind of dedicate? Um, so on Thursday, there were the arguments um, for interim measures, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, just to uh, South Africa arguing that there's a plausible case that Israel may be committing or Israel is committing genocide. Therefore, um, they appealed to um, for the court to grant interim measures and, and interim um, uh, injunction or something to to order Israel to cease and desist, and a few points that they actually requested um, until and in the and, and you know in the mean uh, in the meantime the longer term case would you know take years or whatever for a determination on whether or not it's actually genocide a case mm. on the merits so to speak. So, what were the, what were the arguments uh, summarized by? Um, in in this eighty three page document, so um, um, you're you're, you're quite you're quite correct that the the hearing uh, on Thursday and Friday was not the full hearing to determine whether Israel is committing genocide or not. Um, it was seeking provisional measures, which, uh, as you rightly pointed out, is an interim remedy. That if it's arguable that uh, from the the evidence that you have that Israel is could be committing genocide then to prevent any further atrocities being committed, make a cease and desist order that mm -hmm. Israel withdraws from Gaza and ceases its military campaign with immediate effect. Um, so that's what they were looking for. The actual determination about whether Israel is committing genocide or not, that's going to take years, could be like six, seven years easily. Wow. So for example, the case that uh, Gambia has brought against Myanmar for its genocide of the Rohingya Muslims, um, that started in 2019. They got the provisional measures uh, order, but the case has been going on for years. Um, and, and that's the nature of these things. They will drag on well beyond the mm. time period when this particular phase of the Israeli genocide will be uh, complete. So um, people's expectations need to be, to be measured. So what ex essentially South Africa was saying, um, they were laying it out detail by detail about what this genocide entailed. Um, there's a there's a, a few misconceptions about genocide, which the Israelis always jump on, and, and people like Piers Morgan always talk about, well, if they were committing genocide, there'd be no Palestinians left. So mm -hmm. you know, they'd kill all of them. You don't have to kill every single person. You just need the intention 
to want to kill the entire population or a portion of the population mm. based on their specific trait, like their ethnicity, their race, their religion, um, that kind of thing. Um, there has to be a genocidal intent. And a, a large part of the proceedings was dedicated to demonstrating that genocidal intent. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most difficult aspects of genocide to prove because people can say, well, there was mass killings, there was murder, there was a siege, but was it done with the intention of wiping out yeah. a, a section of the population? And here you had from the very top, from Netanyahu, from the Israeli president, from the various ministers of the defense, national security, mm. all the way down to the generals, to the ordinary soldiers on the field. And they were all almost Singing almost from the same hymn sheet. Well, yeah, exactly. Ide almost identical phrasing, you know, about calling them human animals, that dehumanization aspect, talking about wiping out Gaza, nuking Gaza. There's no innocent civilians. They were famously quoted the, the Amalek example, which the Israeli spokesperson has been at pains to try to deny today that it has any significance and only refer to Hamas. Um, the text is very clear, but it's, it's just, just not the biblical quote, which, yes, we can understand a, a scenario where that could be taken out of context, but it's coupled with all the other statements about nuking Gaza to the extent that the Israeli Attorney General had to issue an advice to the ministers shortly before the ICG hearing that, you know, tone it down, please. Can you stop <laughs> saying this? Yeah, and and they didn't. Their, their response was to say something like the Gaza, mm. everything in Gaza needs to burn. Mm. So... And it's the very, really surreal. They've exposed themselves, and they've been exposed as a, like a proper pariah, kind of lawless, rogue nation, really. Um, kind of just with 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 deranged kinds of statements. So you you, you wouldn't think this is a, you know, this is something uh, very you know, a state in the in the modern sense of the word, with all, all the protocol and the, you know, the the diplomacy and the kind of. Uh, the double speak that normally kind of happens, you know, at least, you know, there's PR, there's, there's all this kind of, but it's kind of all gone out the window and they're you know, cheering on and, you know, and they'll, they'll make some, you know, um, platitudes about, yes, yes, follow international law, but remember what the Bible says, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, <laughs> Amalek and uh, that kind of stuff. So it's really, they're really, I think one of the, the lawyers said it's, it's quite rare actually to have such an obvious kind of, um, expression of genocidal uh, intent because normally genocides they don't go out and say hey we're going to genocide you uh, we mm -hmm. hereby declare our intent you have to infer it from you know what they're doing and and the kind yeah. of uh, the things that they're saying but it's it's never been this kind of obvious really or very rarely in in in, in history uh since the term was coined well i mean so, the, 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 there's two two points to that is firstly is it's not just coming from the political and military leadership. But if you look at Israeli press, Israeli journalists, um, ordinary people, it's quite shocking and it's quite chilling actually to hear the same sort of rhetoric coming from the mouth of ordinary people, the so-called independent press. Mm -hmm. There just seems to be no like distinction at all for, from between them. And my own reflection on this is that you said they don't, they don't seem like a normal state. They seem like a like it would have PR. Israel isn't a normal state. It's an army. It's a military. It's in a military that was imposed upon the land that didn't belong to them. And that's why the whole ideology of Zionism, it thinks like a military, it thinks like a state. In a normal state, you'd have, we all can distinguish, well, well they're, they're, they're military personnel. They have a different way of thinking. They have a battlefield mentality. That's all they, they know. 
and then you have the diplomats and the political speak so they do the soft uh, power approach they don't have that in israel because everyone is a soldier it is it is a military entity and it needs to be treated like that that's why you don't get that soft touch you don't get that soft power they're all focused with a military mindset so part of the um the arguments uh on the south african side they were talking about intent that there's it's clear that they they're expressing intent in various ways that they that they want to get rid of the uh, palestinians mm. at least in gaza um there were also part of the um uh, proceedings were focused on actually highlighting the actual extent of the destruction you know that even if you were to ignore the intent expressed you you can you can infer intent from the the scale of the carnage you know the 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 uh, targeting of civilians journalists hospitals schools and so forth and the fact that this uh, isn't excused uh, under international law with the excuse of self defense because they they kind of um preempted some of these arguments that they they normally kind of uh, mm. come out with um what so what what else what else were they arguing on the on, on so i mean the the obvious stuff was the actions by israel that everybody can see mm. um but there was a not so obvious point that they made was and which comes within the genocide convention as well as the imposition of a siege so even if you sort of create conditions which lead to the genocide lead to mass killing and mass starvation tactics um that itself is a genocidal act with the correct intention now what's interesting is that the former icc prosecutor marino campos he was the very first icc prosecutor he actually said that the prior to the 7th of october just the siege itself of gaza was a genocidal act so without even going in post 7 october they already were in the process of committing genocide by what was happening um one of the the sort of silver linings in all of this horrific episode is the fact that the whole world has woken up to what's been happening and mm-hmm. one thing that the the south african legal team did used to incredibly was from the very outset they've made it very clear that this is a genocide that has its roots and began in 1948 75 mm-hmm. years ago this is just the latest escalation of that same process and that's something that they were at pains to point out time and time again i think that was very uh, effectively done mm-hmm. uh, as you said israel's main sort of thrust of their defense was well we're acting in self defense the south africans preempted that by saying well firstly as an occupying power you don't have a right to self defense because you're already the aggressor and second that's already it, established in international law right yeah 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 that's that, that's a basic principle that if you are the or, aggressor or israel as well israel yeah. is the occupier so it's yeah. the aggressor and it doesn't have a right to self defense in fact it's the palestinians who have the right to self defense they've got the right mm-hmm. to resist against military aggression um including obviously armed resistance in their case so they have every right to do so and the second point is that uh, even if they were to say yeah, well that doesn't apply and israel was acting in self defense the manner in which israel has acted and i i hate the word proportionality it just it's so uh, in in apt for the, the circumstances but it's yeah. the one that they always write but it's it's wholly disproportionate it's just you know it's it's it, it's clearly genocidal you're not going after just you know some hamas members here and there 
Um, and that, that 23, and that really is the Israeli argument. The Israeli argument was what on Friday? Um, firstly, they argued that uh, there's no jurisdiction. They said this isn't a dispute between us and South Africa. But that's so a technical point of law, right? Not, yeah, not, I mean, not, they, not on the just, yeah, they raised it. They said, well, we didn't have a dispute. They didn't send us any letters saying, oh, we've got a problem. They just went straight to court. Uh, I mean, and How rude of them. Yeah, and it's a stupid argument. Um, mm. the, the second one was really that we're not, um, with the self-defense we talked about, and then we're fighting against Hamas. Uh, but they also had a more clever argument that, look, we're not committing genocide because if we were committing genocide, we wouldn't sort of take these measures to prevent death, such as we let in some humanitarian aid. It's not our fault Hamas hijacks it, but we let it in. We also uh, drop leaflets to tell people to go to safe zone. We ask people to evacuate from the north. We set up um, some safe zones for them to go. Of course, all of this like flies in the face of what everybody in the ground is saying is that there's nowhere safe in Gaza. But this is the kind of tactics they're using to uh, put a smoke screen up to the fact that they are committing genocide. And they're also mentioning that all this stuff, all these genocidal statements, we didn't really mean them. <laughs> you know, they were just said in the in the heat of the moment, and they were said by people who aren't actually making policy. Um, they're not the people in the war room. They're people, you know, who are upset because they're so, you know, hurt because obviously we're victims mm. all the time. And, um, you know, we have free speech. And so, you know, we, we, we let people, you know, get that kind of stuff off their chest. But I thought that was quite <laughs> kind um, of a clever way of snaking yeah. out of these clear uh, and obvious kind of uh, statements of genocide and, you know, wipe, wipe them out and human animals and Amalek and so forth. They were like, you know, they didn't mean, you know, uh, this is policy. They were just, you know, uttering their own kind of... Uh, um, poor victims who are, you know, um, kind of uh, get, get, getting that pain off their chest by uh, the, these ridiculous statements. I wouldn't say it was a clever way. It's, it's, it's far from creative. It. Creative, maybe, but it, it's you know, if it was said by a few sort of random, you know, soldiers or generals here, it's only the prime minister, the prime no, minister, no. the president, the minister of defense, and national security, <laughs> um, and all these, uh, you know other ministers and generals. Yeah, and but apart was, from them. It wasn't just said on the 7th or 8th or 9th of October. It's yeah. been said right up until the eve of the case before the Again the and again and again. Again and yeah, again. Yeah. Even, so it, it, it's a repeated feature of this campaign. Um, and I don't think that the judges in the court are going to be easily swayed by that type of, type of argument. What, were you, what would you say uh, were the, the strongest arguments? Uh, that Israel had in uh, for for its defense. Um, I think the one thing they will probably argue, which might have some in terms of the provisional measures, is that we're not. It can only apply to us. Um, if you have a cease and desist, yeah. it doesn't apply to Hamas, and they'll carry on attacking us. Um, so they might try to use that type of sort of language, even though Hamas has the right as Palestinians. They have the right to to defend their territory um, against the aggressor, which is Israel. But I think the way the court is going to look upon that might feel a bit uncomfortable, just because of politics. Uh, yeah. In that sense, I, mean, I do want to talk about politics, but um, one I heard one analyst say 
that if you actually think about that as a defense, then that would kind of render any appeal to um, stopping genocide null and void because with genocide, there's always one side that's carrying out the genocide and another side that's going to try and fight back. But there's, there's probably no scenario where, you know, where you could tell someone stop committing genocide and, you know, that that wouldn't apply there. Mm. Yes? Well, uh, they could, and, and anyone, anyone could say, you know, um, well, if we stop committing genocide to those people, then, uh, you know, they're going to come and, uh, you know, fight back. So, but that's, that's just mm. how it is. You know, you, you don't commit, don't commit genocide in the first place. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it's with Russia, um, they issued the provisional measures against Russia to stop Russia said, we don't care. <laughs> We're going to ignore that. Um, they said it to, uh, uh, Myanmar as well in terms of the Rohingya. So they do give it where there's a political will to do so. They did not give it incidentally and Israel argued this that in Bosnia they said that uh, we, we, and Israel said well look in Bosnia the Serbs were not the, the application was made for provisional measures and they didn't give it. And obviously the, that was before Srebrenica so if anything that kind of argument says, well, you know, you didn't, but maybe you should have, because maybe then you would have had a genocide take place in Srebrenica that did happen. Um, so with all of these things, there's a lot of politics involved. I don't think you can get away from people say it's an independent court and they're independent judges. And that that's true to a certain degree, but it's also true to a certain degree that there is no, a, a large like element of uh, politics involved. How confident are you that um, the merits of the actual arguments are the things that are going to be determining this case and not other influence and, and, and politics um, from, the, from the respective countries of the judges. So the judges come from 15 countries and there's two ad hoc ones, as far as I understand, one from Israel, one from mm. South Africa. Um, is it normal for country or for judges to kind of go and go against the, the foreign policy of their, their respective countries? Um, I don't, do I don't, I don't, gonna... I don't, I don't, I mean, so most cases I said are sort of border, border disputes. Um, in more sensitive cases like this, it really depends on which country it is. I, I don't think it's, it depends on the individual judge as well. So for example, the president of the court at the moment, uh, Judge Donahue, she's American. an Amer American judge. She used to work for the US State Department. Um, a few years ago, the ICJ ruled against Britain over its illegal occupation of the Chagos Islands, uh, which part of which is interesting because Britain allowed, they deported thousands of islanders of Diego Garcia to give it to the Americans to use as an airbase. So when this came to the ICJ, they ruled Britain was in the unlawful occupation. 14 judges ruled uh, against Britain, one judge ruled in favor of Britain, that was Judge Donahue, the American judge. Um, so, you, you know, you, you, you do sort of see this happening, even with the advisory opinion that the ICJ ruled against Israel's apartheid wall. That was back in 2014, I believe. Even then, there was one judge who ruled against it, but 14 ruled in favor. The one judge against was, again, the American judge. Um, so I think certain countries will feel a bit um, sort of have their hands tied, uh, certain judges. 
but I would hope, I really would hope that the majority would be able to see this for what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even like the Russian, there's a Russian judge when the ICJ ruled on Russia, Ukraine, that Russian judge was the one judge who didn't rule against his state. So for what, better or for worse, there are going to be certain countries who, certain judges who may feel that political pressure yeah. a bit more so than others. What did you make of the reaction from different countries and different different parts of the world to the case and the arguments? There was a real resounding sense of um, relief and justice I, I felt from the global south, um, Africa, Latin America, Asia. People sort of felt that finally, for the first time, the issue of Israel was being spoken about and determined in phraseology and, and rhetoric that was so warranted. So often it's sort of people pussyfoot around this, they don't really get into the meat of it. And you had, I think people were very proud of that South African you know, yeah. legal team. You had people who had overcome their own oppression, their own apartheid that was propped up by the West, had come out of that system become educated, become lawyers, judges, and they banded together and come to the defense of another nation which was experiencing the same, if not worse, than they went through. So they and, used the master's tools in the master system to try and uh, demolish the master's house. Elsewhere. Yeah, but they, they did. But I mean, as we said, that may not even happen. But I think it's yeah. just a sense that this is a country, when you think about it, it's quite embarrassing as a Muslim in one sense, because yeah. of all the sort of dozens of Muslim countries, all that we, and this was a call from week one, that somebody needs to invoke the genocide convention in the ICJ, who's going to do it? And all it would take was one country to do that. And Is there a reason why it wasn't anyone else? I mean, lots of them jumped on board afterwards and supporting um, South Africa yeah. from diplomatic kind of you know, whatever statements and platitudes and so forth. Is there a reason why there wasn't a Muslim country who just put the put the application in for others to? I don't know. I think I think the, the the person who goes on the front line first is obviously going to take the biggest the greatest heat. And if you look at the Israeli sort of allegations now that they're throwing at South Africa, mm -hmm. they are criminally complicit with Hamas. They've uh, decided working with the working for the, the devil. devil, working for the devil. They've decided they were part, they're complicit in genocide themselves. Yeah. So this is all thrown at South Africa. Now, with so many Muslim countries generally subservient to America and and in need of their support to keep themselves propped up, none of them want to be that individual who takes it. You know, some were more disappointing than others. I didn't have much high hopes of the Arab world. Turkey, I would have hoped, would have been willing to. Um, sacrifice whatever you know economic and trade interests it has with Israel to take that case it didn't um, and in one sense it's almost better that a you know non-muslim country took it I mean um, PR and in, in you know PR wise it's a, a stroke of genius well yeah South, South Africa you know yeah yeah the, the the last apartheid state taking on the 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 last remaining apartheid state yeah the the the, the, the the dismantlers of the last apartheid state, you know, taking on the 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 last remaining uh, European colony in the Middle East, 
and it also put it also put Trevor Noah in a really difficult position <laughs> because he he didn't. I haven't seen what he said. No, he hasn't said anything. That's yeah. the point. <laughs> he was praising he, uh, praising Germany in his last uh, special as well. You know, saying yeah, that Germany's yeah. learned from their history and so forth. Really cool. Incredible. Place. I mean, he's got a, he's nominated for for a, a Grammy, I think, in February. So he's probably got his eye on that. But I think when yeah. with South Africa, his own country suddenly entering the arena, and he still <laughs> you would expect him to see something at that point. But even yeah. then, you know, nothing. There, there is this palpable sense of in the global south that you know, okay, finally we're standing up to the kind of colonial powers, the the neoliberalism, and um, you know, there's this sense of uh, maybe a shift some people are saying of kind of global power away from the US and and, and into the global south do you agree with that um i i think the current international order is finished i think everybody can see it for what it is now uh there's no blindfold anymore uh, america is not the power it used to be there are rising powers outside of america um the EU with Britain coming out and other countries are, with the far right sort of coming to power in different countries. More people are talking about leaving the EU themselves. So I think these sort of power blocks are changing and um, you will see a different order in developing over the next few decades. Yeah. I think that there will be there will be that. It might not be a complete power shift, but there'll be more of a power balance, I think. Yeah. One person I heard say that um, it used to be that you get, as a state, you get enough power to be able to bend the rules and now what south africa is, has been doing is it's it's empowered itself to this level now and but it's it's it appears to be or a hopeful person might say we're being ushered into a new era where a state gets enough power to enforce the rules uh, on others and i think it's only a good thing when there's more uh, powerful states that are closer than just being a one kind of superpower, kind of dominating everyone, but others that can hold each other to account and 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 uh, enforce uh, enforce the rules. But um, I mean, one thing that that a lot of people have been talking about is, I think Owen Jones said that the Western media is damaged beyond repair. Its reputation, mm. and you know, the <laughs> radio silence on Thursday, one of the the most important uh, newsworthy. Uh, cases of our generation, right? Maybe maybe a few generations, a complete silence, but full wall-to-wall -wall coverage on on Friday, where when Israel is uh, giving its 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 defense. What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to like on Thursday with the, the complete absence of media coverage, just a short news article in BBC News, um, you compare that to their coverage of the Johnny Depp trial of the you know the wags <laughs> I'm, I'm, i apologize that was the the, the trial of our, of our generation <laughs> so you would think right um so you you have those type of like crazy wall-to-wall -wall coverage um, and that's fine if, if you're going to take that stance then on friday i wouldn't have expected you to cover it either i would have been sort of annoyed that you didn't cover this story but then to actually on friday say okay you know what we're gonna give this the coverage it deserves and give it wall-to-wall -wall coverage it just shows both sides. And to be perfectly frank, um, it's Owen Jones has sort of come onto the scene late about the British media. You know, we've been yeah. saying this for you know Muslims for, for a long time. We've seen yeah. this double standards, this hypocrisy. That 
over a hundred of their fellow journalists have been targeted with their, their families, families. Yeah. with their families. And to this point, even now, there's not been anything other than slight little sympathy for uh, one or two journalists, like prominent ones like Wilder Dauda and, and, and others. But generally speaking, there hasn't been any condemnation. There's been no sort of recognition, acknowledgement, awards, you know, posthumously mm. granted. Um, condemnation, a call for the end to the targeting of journalists. There's been none of that. In in fact, it's been the opposite. You have people like Sheila Fogarty at the early stages of this was actually questioning the independence of some of these journalists and saying a so-called independent and Hamas-controlled media. That kind of rhetoric coming out, you know, where people are being killed. It was so callous, so, you know, cold-blooded, really. And and you see that collusion between the media here and the the genocide that's going on. This it this is. angle, sorry, someone. This angle on on the media role. I don't think we've actually discussed it enough. And I think maybe on another yeah. program you need to get someone like Dr. Osman uh, Latif on to talk about this. Is the dehumanization aspect? Yeah. Because in any sort of uh, genocide, it can only take place where you have that dehumanization. So you saw it in in Rwanda, yeah. uh, the Radio Rwanda. Who used to all of demonize the others? Like they, there was reports of them literally soldiers going and carrying, um, you know, a machete or a gun on one arm and a radio in the other. You had it in uh, what's his name, Julian Stryker. He was executed at Nuremberg for his role in the Holocaust, even though he didn't kill a single Jew. But because he was in his publication, Der Stumer, that used to basically have all the anti-Semitic caricatures, incite hatred against Jews. He was seen as instrumental as a, a Nazi leader, that he, he was actually executed. In wow. the Balkans, there was actually a report on Serb radio and Serb TV that Bosnian Muslims were feeding Serb children to a lion in the zoo. And mm. that became national headlines. And, you know, similar to how we saw with this... Atrocity uh, propaganda, yeah. The, the beheaded babies, babies in ovens mass and rapes, babies all this, and raping, yeah. yeah. All of this nonsense that's mm. that's been propagated, and the mainstream media in this country. Normally, you would see it in a country at war, but here we're seeing it in the British press, and and that's a really concerning thing because it yeah. gives you an insight into the how easily and how willing they are to accept these sort of Islamophobic yeah. tropes that are thrown around. We did a whole episode on uh, Islamophobia unscripted by. Uh, uh, Empowered by some trinity with Dr. Osman Latif a few weeks oh, ago okay. <laughs> uh, on the, the dehumanization aspect and how to rehumanize Palestinians. Uh, I think it was episode two. Check it out. But uh, yeah, it, it, on that note of the media, obviously, so the Western kind of um, the corporate media, the, the legacy media completely uh, humiliated its, uh, you know, uh, in face of kind of democratized uh, information and, and, and people sending you know, um, news directly from on the ground and from the, the courtroom and uh, other alternative media kind of platforms like Sam Trinity and uh, Muslim ones, obviously, and, and even non-Muslim alternative kind of um, media platforms kind of uh, filling that vacuum. Apart from that, one thing that really um, kind of made me stop and think was the fact that in the courtroom, when the the South African lawyers, for example, or the lawyers on the South Africa team were giving their arguments, developing their arguments, 
had judges from all across the world. This is the world court, you know, the highest judicial authority in the UN. The videos they were playing were of, you know, the videos that we find online and, and we, we share around. And I saw a few from like Middle East Eye and, you know, these alternate kind of alternative media mm. platforms, TikTok, uh, you know, social media kind of videos, videos that are coming from, you know, on the ground there in Gaza, for example. And I've become viral because we all have the opportunity and or the duty now to help make something go viral because we don't just scroll past it. We stop, we pause on these platforms. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we, we engage with the content and that, you know, then feeds back into those um, algorithms and shows that, that, that content and more and more people's timeline. So it just, it just made me think that, you know, we need to double down and really be, uh, on the lookout for any important information, important news. Don't just get depressed when you see it. No, engage with that content, share it. And you never know, it might, because because so many people shared it and made it too loud to ignore, it's ended up in, you know, places like the World Court. Yeah, no, so, absolutely. I had the same reflection. I mentioned it in the Khutbah on Friday as well. Um, if you took a parallel, um, what we used to do, when I, I used to work for the Islamic Human Rights Commission, and we had this campaign of letter writing to prisoners, and the cage prisoners used to do as well, writing to the prisoners in Guantanamo. And very often people would say, well, will the letter actually get to them? Will someone actually read the letter? And the answer is, if you send, if one person was to send a letter, it's probably not going to get there. But if there's like 500 letters coming in, there's inevitably one of them is going to get find its way through. They'll let them have one. And just your your letter may never reach the prisoner, but it facilitates somebody else's letter getting through. It adds mm -hmm. to that pressure. Mm -hmm. And for the, the guards and the government receiving those letters, they're realizing this person is remembered. We can't just abuse him, torture him, do what we need, because there are people who are concerned about it. So similarly with this content that we've been sharing, um, I, I, when I saw the MEE, video going on I said well with you know, the logo and that. stuff yeah with the logo but like free advertising it, 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 it's really important because what you said was we sometimes think we underestimate what we do when we like and share and uh, Sami Hamdi is always talking about this that it, it makes such a critical role that within you know the, the, the secretaries of defense of Israel and the United States are actually holding meetings to decide how to deal with this mm. the TikTok generation gen z um even uh that uh shaitan um elon levy the israeli spokesperson is here at the moment he has a TikTok manager so literally she will follow him around 24 7 and record his reactions to stuff and just so we can make just so we can take the mic out of him in the comments yeah so no, he puts it onto TikTok, and then she's yeah. got her team, and they all manage his TikTok. So, I mean, ironically, that's where they're losing most of the battle here. But <laughs> they are investing so many resources yeah. in him and in, in in social media because they realize that this is an information war. Yeah. And the yeah. sooner that we realize this, and and I, I I'm going to stress this because it's a time that people are giving a lot of money for um for uh, for Gaza, the rebuilding, for aid, and. You know, inshallah, that money is going to come. We know that there'll be millions, millions, billions mm -hmm. invested from around the world, from countries that have more money than we can have possibly raised. They'll all be doing it to rebuild Gaza and to give out 
the necessary humanitarian aid that's needed. But what no one's going to be doing, or very few people are going to be doing, that's where we as a community really need to understand our role, is to invest that money in the media narrative, in the information war, in the advocacy aspect of it. So um, I'm going to plug a few people here, if you don't mind. So Cage, yeah. in terms of the kind of stuff they're doing, dealing with sort of the British Zionists who are coming back, dealing with people who've been sanctioned as a result of doing pro-Gaza posts on social media and have been lost their jobs, been suspended. They need, I mean, they're inundated and they will need money to pay for case workers so they can get on with the rest of their, their remit. You have human aid and advocacy who have a charity openly are calling for advocacy on these issues. They need case workers to do their research. The type yeah. of stuff that we all sort of are squeezing in between our day jobs and, and you know, babysitting, whatever else. We're sitting at laptops trying to do stuff. Imagine we had full-time people working on these things. So when you're deciding where to set up your standing order, give your 500 pounds, 1,000 pounds, just really think about where do you want this to go? Do you want it just to go to rebuild when others will do that? We know that the majority of people, yeah. the majority of money will go there. But there has to be a significant portion. As now, we more than ever, we should understand that. And Especially seeing, Muslims in the US and the UK. Absolutely. Have a, obviously, we have... We have the added embarrassment that our governments are the biggest supporters of, um, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the Zionist occupation. Um, so we have a bigger duty to do the advocacy. You know, over you know there. there's there's a guy in Ireland who got sacked. He's a he's a, uh, a tech guy. He got sacked because of his pro-Palestine stuff. He, in fact, he wrote a, a, a an article saying, "I've just done this, and I'm about to get sacked. I know I haven't received my letter yet, but it's inevitable." And he did get sacked and he lost a lot of a lot of contracts. He's gone and set up this thing called Tech for Palestine. And, you know, he's just inviting anybody to get involved. So today they put out, launched this thing, Fact Check, on the 7th of October. And it's brilliant. It's literally put on all the stuff that we talk about. Now, we've been sharing the information and talking about it. And every time somebody comes up with the burnt, beheaded babies, we try to rebut them. And it was very simple in, its, in the task force was to compile all the evidence, put it together in a nice website, so it's there, accessible for anyone, and you can just link back to it. Yeah. Many of us talked about doing this for the past three months. None of us actually had the time to actually do it or the resources. This guy went and did it. He got some people together and they've done it. So this kind of activity and resistance is, is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just not good enough for our community with its skill set to be you know, and, I, and I, I'm going to say this softly because I just emphasize the importance of it, sharing and liking. It is yeah. really important, but we, we can really push the boundaries. Mm. Um, we have to take our inspiration from the Palestinians. The way they resist and with the limited resources they have and the manner in which they have been able to resist the occupation in every single manner, single single way you can think of, that should be inspiring for us. We are very, very good at making excuses, but we have to actually look at the, you know, what Allah's given us. Let's utilize yeah. those for our benefit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that moves us on nicely. Just to for the sake of time, I wanted to ask you what's next now. So this, um, this, uh, even also the kind of logistics and the mechanics of the court, right? Are we going to be waiting? You think weeks for a judgment from the the the, the judges? 
um, on these interim uh, or provisional measures? I what think happens that, next? Um, so the provisional measures, I, I would be surprised if we didn't get a decision within the next couple of weeks. Um, they normally act quite quickly, but they still have to you know prepare a, a proper determination um, and an order. And if other countries um, officially, what's the term they take part? Intervene. Inter intervene. Does that lengthen that process? Uh, yeah, because then they have to consider their intervention as well yeah. under the legal argument. So South Africa, I think, actually said support our supporters, but don't formally yeah. intervene because it's going to delay things. Um, what what uh, will happen? I mean, also the judges are changing in early February. Four of the judges are leaving. So I'm I'm pretty sure that they'll want to at least determine this issue before they leave. So then the new judges can look after the the actual substantive merit-based application. Is it possible for just other countries to kind of just keep intervening to kind of filibuster it, to just kind of delay it? Um, um, I guess in theory, you, you that could happen. I mean, the reality is give it's, good to, idea. it's going to take years anyway. So it's... Yeah. it's no, it's, for these provisional... Um, no, no, I, I, no. It's already it's, at this stage. It's done. I don't think you can intervene okay. now. So okay. they've had the hearing. So yeah. Germany's intervention is going to be within the substantive for the main, case, not okay. for the provisional measures. Yeah. Okay. And imagine so if if they do um, uh, agree with uh, South Africa, what other measures that you, that you one would expect? Do they? What were the measures that uh, South Africa have asked for? Um, I don't know the full detail, right? But I think the obvious, the obvious one is a cease and desist. The Israel withdraw and stop, uh, you know, stop bombing Gaza essentially. Um, another one is to end the siege, um, because that, as we said, was is a genocidal measure in itself. Yeah. Um, so I don't. I'm not sure what, what the ICJ are going to come out with. As I said, they're going to sort of have to try to do something that they think can be reasonably implemented. The yeah. reality is nothing they say is going to be implemented by the UN Security Council. They're going to basically, US will veto it, UK will abstain. Yeah. Um, but if there is a provisional measure, I think the the what we can do with that is huge. So just the way that they try to shame us for supporting Palestinians mm. and saying, oh, you support how you know, jihad or whatever <laughs> else they, they told us. You, you you flying that Israeli flag in your bio on Twitter, you, you know, shame on you. How can you have that up when they've been accused of arguably of committing genocide? Surely should I take it off at least? Because yeah. it's been proven to by the court that there's a good chance that what you are supporting is genocide. And I think we should go on the offensive, really go on yeah, the offensive yeah. with anybody who just by a flag. You know, that right now there's a case in Tower Hamlets that they're bringing against uh, the council because... They didn't take down the Palestinian flags off the buildings. And uh, the way they're actually lawyers for Israel are framing it, they're saying this is an, they're using advertising law, saying that this is an advertisement for Hamas. It's uh, just ridiculous the type of uh, legal strategy they're bringing. Touching us, Well, it is. But what we should do is, you know, this really, really offended me, to be honest, is that. The Palestinian flag, police officers going around door to door saying, oh, take your flag down because it could be offensive. Really? Well, this was in the early days when people, there's a lot of videos are out there that people are saying that's offensive, it's linked to terrorism, it's linked to 7 of October. Whereas the Israeli flag, which everything it represents, 
apartheid, genocide, colonial settlers, uh, settler colonialism, theft, murder, mm. you know, all of these things, prisoners. And that's been like sort of lighting, lighting up the whole of parliament. It's been cast onto Downing Street, our public buildings, mm. the public, you know, health ministry while they're bombing hospitals. You know, that flag is so offensive to most we, people. We need to go on the offensive. Is there anything we can do to returning uh, militants from uh, from the IDF? Yeah, name and like, shame. So yeah. a lot of these guys are publicly putting their stuff up anyway, but we need to really be creating dossiers. And uh, I, I think maybe... What I've about launching, what about kind of um, asking them for, for them to be arrested and... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can start with, you know, Elon Levy is a British citizen as well. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of their spokespersons, a lot of their PR guys, they are British. They've come through mm. the born and raised here, gone through the ranks. So these guys are coming back. We need to basically creating dossiers on them. We need to be reporting them to the Metropolitan Police War Crimes Unit. I know Tayyab Ali has said that he's sort of engaged in some of this, um, but it's not going to be enough. We, we all have to do our, our mm. help him with that resource-wise. If any lawyer will tell you that if there's, you know, trying to do the research is, is quite resource intensive in these cases. If other people are putting that together outside, that's really helpful. So if people are putting in dossiers of these guys with their names, with their, you know, where they grew up, their addresses. So it's easier to issue arrest warrants for them. It's easier to find them. Mm. Looking through their social media, looking through their checking if they've met any genocidal statements to show their intent. All of this has to be done. Because one of the arguments that people are making is, okay, they joined the IDF, 3,000 of them, but did they carry out any war crimes or atrocities? Did they carry, but if they've gone in with that genocidal intent, you're halfway there. I would argue that even joining the IDF itself is a war crime because the IDF is a military that upholds an apartheid regime and its task is to implement apartheid. Um, and commit war crimes. So, yeah. you know, all of this is really, really relevant. At a minimum, we need to make life very uncomfortable for these people. They cannot just come back in there, swan around new studios and write books and profit off it. They need to be met to f be met, feel ashamed of who they are. You know, yeah. people should be ashamed to platform them. And that's something that all of us can play a role in. I think yeah. we always have to do that. The ICC, can that be used as well to launch so that's for that that's where individuals can take individuals to court right for for so, war so, crimes so, so the icc has the power to investigate individuals and prosecute them the problem with the icc is a lack of political willpower now the icc in 2021 uh, recognized that it's going to investigate crimes committed in israel and palestine from 2014 onwards it's the current prosecutor, Karim Khan, a uh, British national, until now has not even been to Gaza. Been to Israel, he's, you know, he, he swans around there. He hasn't been to Gaza. He, this, this guy was appointed to this position because he is useful for them. The ICC is a very, very politicized institution. If you look at its track record of prosecuting people for these type of activities, they all are based in uh, Africa, right? That should tell you all you need to know. So, I mean, I've got, they've got 31 cases before it at the moment. And the countries that, uh, the nationals that they're investigating are nationals of Sudan, 
the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Central African Republic, Libya, uh, Ivory Coast, Mali, Uganda. <laughs> so they're the cases that are currently before it. I mean, it's, it's an open secret that, um, you know, white people aren't taken to the ICC as for for uh, kind of non-whites, but... Now you're telling me that there's no other war crimes committed by any, you know, person from, from the West in any conflict around the world, that they haven't come before the ICC. In fact, when uh, the previous prosecutor was said she's going to investigate British and American uh, war crimes in Afghanistan, the Trump administration put sanctions on her um, and, and on, on, on the ICC staff. And the other problem is the US heavily funds the ICC and they started threatening to withdraw the funding. Now this Kareem Khan pointed that one of the first things he did was two years ago, he said, because of our limited resources, now we're not going to investigate um, all the cr alleged crimes in Afghanistan. We're just going to investigate the alleged crimes by the Taliban and ISIS, but not by the US, not by NATO, not by the UK. So, you know, he's a useful individual to have in that position for them. He lacks political will. He's met a lot of good rhetoric this time around. But, you know, I think it's important um, to qualify that by just saying there's a link going around where you can actually upload material directly to the ICC. And I think people should utilize that because Kareem Khan might not be the prosecutor for long. Um, and whoever comes in later on will be able, might be, have better politics, have better principles and be able to utilize that information. So if you do have material, particularly if you could circulate this link to people in Gaza, people in Palestine, they can directly circulate the evidence onto that forum.